Hello and welcome to Commonwealth Street. You are listening to Michelle Gia's independent research blog looking at the complexities of the Detroit education system. You're also listening to episode two, What Charter Schools Say. So my big question for this episode was, why charter schools? Why do they exist? As a hapless Canadian myself, um, I think my outsider status is really part of the issue here because in the United States there are public schools, there are public magnet schools, there are private schools, and then there are charter schools. In Canada, I can only personally remember encountering public and private schools. So in all of the ways the question can be asked, what is a charter school? Now, as soon as I set out to answer this question, I found myself caught up in a boisterous ongoing debate. The actual definition of a charter school, determined as it is by state and federal laws, turns out to be pretty easy to find. But there seems to be a huge debate about whether charter schools are good or not, um, with good also being defined differently depending on who you ask. The most interesting thing is that the issue seems to be pretty bifurcated. There are those who are vehemently pro-charter school, and there are those who are vehemently anti. So what is the dictionary definition of charter school? Well, the American Heritage Dictionary says that a charter school is a public school operated independently of the local school board, often with a curriculum and educational philosophy different from the other schools in the system. Um, The reason that a charter school can operate differently from other schools in the system is that even though they're publicly funded, they're actually privately owned and run. A group of people can get together and sign what is called a charter, which lays out the goals of the school, um, as well as what metrics they're going to live up to, for example, graduation rates and so on. And if it gets approved by an authorizing body, that group of people can start a charter school. Um, and also receive public funds to be able to run that school. So, for those readers or listeners who are familiar with the terms of this charter school debate, or are perhaps even avid debaters within it, the contents of today's post might seem kind of facile, or maybe too high-level or abstract to be useful. On one hand, I understand this makes sense given that I'm a newcomer, but on the other hand, I also want to argue that it's important to see these debates in different terms. It's important to see them in terms of their grounding assumptions, perhaps, or in terms of what might be most obvious to an outsider like me. And I would argue that seeing this debate differently can actually help us reveal more about the ecosystem that supports it. Who debates about the merits of charter versus district schools? Who supplies the statistics that furnish these debates? Who gathers data and designs experiments? And who decides what forms of data count in this conversation? Because I get to be a newcomer, and because I'm not tied to any particular institution with its particular orthodoxies of what is valuable and what's not valuable, I feel strongly that it's important for me to hold on to the big questions insofar as they allow me to keep my head straight about my own biases as I work. So, 
what are we going to explore today? Today, I happened to stumble across some pro-charter articles and resources, and so we are going to take a look at that. What do pro-charter proponents say, and what does it actually mean? And in the process of asking what they actually mean, we may also discover some blind spots or some things that might be missing. Finally, the last point is that the reason we're studying this at all is because Detroit's school system includes a bunch of charter schools. In fact, 47% of Detroit school students do attend a charter school, which is the largest percentage anywhere in the state of Michigan. So this turns out to be a really big choice that guardians have to make. So what is a charter school? To see today's discussion, I'd like to focus on a video that caught my attention for the arguments that it laid in favor of charter schools. The video is called, What is a Charter School? And it was created by the Colorado League of Charter Schools. And we're gonna start by listening to the first minute of this video. What is a charter school? That's a great question, and it's, it's difficult to answer in a short bit. Charter schools, if managed correctly, and if they have the right academic program, quite frankly, can provide uh, children and families who traditionally don't have options. They have the institutional traditional school in their neighborhoods. They can provide for them a quality option to really give and introduce the young people to an opportunity that otherwise they would not have. You know, in my mind, a charter school is, is a parent's um, ideal public school. It has been for so many years that our parents chose their schools based on their zip code or based on their neighborhood. And so charter schools give parents and families the option of looking at how their children learn best, what the priorities are for their families, and then choose a school that actually fits their students and fits the family. A charter school is a public school, first and foremost. We are still a public school. But we have parents that have been organized that they would like a different choice for their children, where parents can have more involvement in the... Now, the goal of this post isn't to take the Colorado League of Charter Schools to task for its hedging in this video, but it is worth pointing out. For a video titled, What is a Charter School? It takes an awfully long time to answer this question, if it answers it at all. In this first minute, we've heard a bunch of things about charter schools. We've heard that if they're managed correctly and have the right academic program, they can provide children and families who traditionally don't have options a quality option. We've heard that a charter school is a parent's ideal public school. We've also heard that charter schools give parents and families the option of choosing a school that fits their family. So this all sounds pretty good. Um, and the video goes on to highlight two more themes about charter schools that we will return to in this episode. And those two themes are school choice and parental participation. Before we move on fully, I want to return to the title of this video. What is a charter school? Like I said earlier, the definition of a charter school is not very difficult to find. It wouldn't have been difficult for the creators of this video, who, remember, purport to be educators, or at least invested in education, to just answer the question that they themselves set out to answer. But instead of doing so, they seem to answer a different question entirely. Why are charter schools good? 
In my brief reading around this topic, this particular sleight of hand was pretty widespread in pro-charter school materials. Instead of directly stating what a charter school is, that is a publicly funded school that is privately run, many pro-charter school articles, videos, and websites emphasize the idea that charter schools provide choice, competition, quality of education, etc. Why? Well, I have two hypotheses around this. The first is that the real definition of charter school frankly sounds kind of bad. Like a publicly funded school that is privately run? Taxpayer dollars directly funding a private enterprise? That in and of itself runs against what most people think of when they think of public money and how it should be spent. A great example of this comes from the comment section of John Oliver's video on charter schools. Um, someone on YouTube Brandon Davidson uh, wrote, charter schools are basically public schools that are taxpayer funded and privately run, end quote. Nope, I can't possibly see a problem with this at all. <laughs> and this had 546 likes at the time of writing this article. Now, my second hypothesis for why the actual definition of charter schools is not often mentioned in these articles is that is a bit more subtle. And that is that the real definition of a charter school naturally begs a few questions that are not only uncomfortable, but they might actually lead to truths that could be politically inconvenient or even thorny. Like, if you hear the fact that we are creating publicly funded institutions that are privately run, it's pretty natural to ask, okay, well, what's wrong with the current schools that exist, both public and private, and how did they get that way? If charter schools are privately run and operated, can they potentially benefit the individuals who own them at the cost of taxpayer money? Who can run these schools and who decides? Also, who decides who decides? Who regulates these charter schools? How tight is that regulation and does it work? I would say that the theme that unites the questions above is the question of power and who wields it in the world of education. And as long as we don't look at these questions, we can take the problem of inner city urban schools kind of as a given and look at the solutions to it, which is what a lot of pro-charter people um, do, which is totally understandable. Um, however, one of the reasons that I feel pro-charter explanations of charter schools so frequently emphasize why charter schools are good uh, is that charter schools only seem like a good idea when the alternatives are really bad. When public school results are awful, charter schools are called in to generate healthy competition and choice. But when public schools are doing wonderfully, or local parents are rich enough to afford private schools, charter schools don't seem to make nearly as much sense. Even though their cited benefits like choice, parental participation, and competition could still theoretically apply. Um, there's a great article on this in The Atlantic called Why Don't Suburbanites Want Charter Schools that lays out some of the reasons why folks in higher income brackets or in more suburban neighborhoods don't seem to be, don't seem to want charter schools to move into those neighborhoods um, for their own kids. So said in another way, how many of the education reform activists who argue for the merits of charter schools, if given a choice, would send their own children to an urban charter school? 
The potential hypocrisy of pro-charter school activists doesn't have to negate the value of charter schools for those who attend them, of course. They can still be a better option than what's available, even if they're ultimately worse than what other Americans can access. But this whole situation still gives me pause. At the very least, I feel compelled to take, you know, sort of sunny, everything's wonderful here, endorsements with a grain of salt. And in fact, because charter schools are often presented as a foil to district public schools, the traditional option that people talked about in the video above, they don't often have to be argued for on their own merit. They only have to be argued for the fact that they produce better results for the poor and disadvantaged than whatever already exists. Now, if this was the whole story, this is good in and of itself, right? Like if we have something better and it doesn't harm other invisible things we care about, we should probably implement it. But I'm not going to allow myself to be convinced by either side until I talk to parents and students who have experienced this system. Because at the end of the day, their opinions matter more than the philanthropists, researchers, administrators, and activists with a stake in this system. So, with that healthy preamble aside, let's talk about the main talking points in this movement and what they might imply. Charter schools increase parental choice. This is one of the most widespread talking points about charter schools that I have encountered. It was so widespread, in fact, that as I read on, the words choice and option started to take on almost a magical quality, as though the people who were speaking them meant something different from the dictionary definition I was used to. Uh, here's a quote from an article on charter schools from the Public School Review. Charter schools are schools of choice choice to parents, students, teachers, and administrators. Parents and students get to choose to enroll in a school that may offer a unique learning environment, such as a school whose science classes are conducted in the field, or offer alternative learning methodologies, such as a specialization in arts education. Basically, these schools are free from many of the regulations that apply to traditional public schools." End quote. Now, the above description sounds pretty great right? At least until the last sentence. Like, If I were a parent, I'm not sure I would want to send my child to a school that was, quote, free from many of the regulations that apply to traditional public schools. But to understand choice, we also have to empathetically understand the mechanics of choice. In other words, in order to choose, we first have to understand our options. And in order to understand our options, we need time and all of the privilege that it requires to give us time. So consider, from the same article as what I just quoted above, there is a list of questions a parent is supposed to consider before enrolling their child at a charter school. And as you listen to this list, consider what it would actually be like to answer these questions for every school that you're interested in. Quote, If you are considering enrolling your child at a charter school, you need to consider some questions before you even visit the school. For example, where is it located? Is the distance feasible for your family? How many years has the school been operating under its charter? Does the school have a track record of showing academic pro progress? What teaching methodology does the school embrace? What is the procedure for enrolling students? If you decide that a charter school might be feasible for your family, plan a visit to the school campus. For your visit, make sure that you get to meet the principal and a few teachers. Arrange for a tour of the school to get a feel for its facilities. Look around classrooms and examine the quality and quantity of textbooks, technology, and supplies. Finally, school officials should make the following important details very clear. The educational philosophy or mission. 
the procedures regarding student discipline and safety, how student progress is encouraged and monitored, library resources, including technology, use of technology to support teaching and learning in the classroom, available extracurricular and enrichment activities such as music, the arts, student clubs, and organizations, transportation policies and procedures, policies to support students with academic, social, or emotional difficulties, strategies used to teach students who are not fluent in English, professional development opportunities for teachers, academic progress compared to requirements set forth by the Charter. To get complete knowledge about the school, you should observe details like, do teachers seem enthusiastic and knowledgeable, asking questions to keep the interest of the students and keep them engaged? Does the principal seem confident and interested in interacting with students, teachers, and parents? How do students behave in class, in the halls, and in other common areas around the campus? How well are the facilities maintained? Apart from these general questions, be sure to ask these charter-specific questions as well. Why was this school created? Is this the permanent location or facility for the school? If not, will the school be moving to another location in the near future? Does the school have a specific curricular focus? Who is the charter holder or the group that created the school? How does the school select its teachers? Are the teachers certified? End quote. Are you exhausted yet? I am. <laughs> now, even if a parent had the luxury of staying home or even taking a day off work, the idea that they should be responsible for answering all of these questions for each school they visit, including questions that are often extremely difficult to answer and or buried underneath a charter school's brand, like, why was this school created, is pretty preposterous. And this would be one thing if charter schools were performing well consistently and you couldn't really go wrong, right? It doesn't really matter what you choose, but it's totally another situation if charter schools have demonstrated a large range of historical outcomes, which they have, and this is only speaking quantitatively. In another post, I'd like to cover the emotional outcomes as well. But what's more, without stricter regulation, the answer to these questions can really vary wildly. Part of the promise of a more regulated education system is the promise that the government or regulating bodies can actually help you do the heavy lifting of answering many of these questions to a reasonable degree. So the details might shift, but a basic reality of respect and humane treatment should prevail. However, the reality is that, as a parent, your ability to answer these questions thoroughly while working full-time has the ability to radically alter your child's future trajectory for better or extraordinarily worse, including by potentially landing your child in a school that closes during the school year, or is taught by unaccredited teachers, or creates impressive college statistics through outright abuse. Now, my point is not that all charter schools are terrible. My point is that some charter schools are terrible, and in the charter school orthodoxy, it seems to be the job of parents to sniff those out with time and energy that they probably don't have. Should it really be on parents to do the research necessary to avoid an abusive school that operates on public funds? Said in another way, choice is only a good thing if you have the time and energy to make an informed choice. Without that, it can often hide a quiet transference of responsibility for terrible results, like you chose, so it's on you. Which leads me to the other meaning of the word choice. Choice, when it's used as a positive point in the charter school discussion, also seems to go hand in hand with parental participation. So here's a quote from Bob Schaefer, who's a principal of Liberty Common High School and was also 
a member of the House of Representatives from 97 to 2003. Education, even though we hire government to help us, education is a parent's responsibility. There's nothing more important than public education led by parents, driven by parents, where the quality of education is defined by parents. So when I heard this quote above, something in me really cringed. Um, I'm the product of a wonderful, lucky two-parent household. Um, and even though both my parents were working, they were able to set aside enough time to research the public schools in the area and actually even buy a new house in order to place me and my brother in a good public school. Not everyone gets that luxury, right? Not even nearly. But even in that extreme case, right, where my parents have the wherewithal to literally buy property to get me into a good school, I don't believe that my parents were primarily responsible for my education. They played an enormous central role, and there's no way I could have had the education I had without them. But the quality of education at my school, it wasn't just driven by my parents or defined by them. It was driven by experts in education, right? Whether they were teachers, school administrators, or policymakers. And in fact, I don't think I would have wanted to attend a school where the quality of education is defined by parents. Yes, parents should care about their kids' education, that's wonderful, but they shouldn't have to care in order for kids to get a decent education. Let alone to have the privilege to be able to buy a house in order to get your kid into the right school. Now, proponents of charter school education will say that this is exactly what's wrong with traditional public schools. And I totally agree. People shouldn't have to buy houses in expensive neighborhoods to be able to get great schooling. That being said, the emphasis on choice in relation to charter schools is itself kind of troubling because it implies that greater choice means that it's now totally on parents to get their kids into a good school when often that's still literally impossible. But don't take it from me, here's John Oliver. Philly Magazine advises parents, don't forget to Google any schools you're looking at to make sure they weren't once unexpectedly shut down or run by a CEO who pleaded guilty to theft. Then, leaving behind the Colorado video, there's a larger systems-level view to be had. Supporters of charter schools say that competition will make all schools better, including public schools. How exactly? Well, the magic of market competition. Charter schools are seen by supporters as a way to harness the power of the free market, competition, and choice to create a social security net for the poor. Assuming that regular public schools are going to continue to suck, if we open the free market of schools, competition between institutions will naturally increase the quality of education for all students. And in fact, there seems to be some evidence that charter schools can do this, but people disagree on how much they actually make a difference. Pro-charter school advocates cite studies that show charter schools with massive improvements. Anti-charter school advocates point out that peer-reviewed studies, while they do show improvement, don't show nearly as much improvement as other things like making class size smaller. That being said, if test scores, graduation rates, and college admissions are anything to go by, there is definitely evidence that some charter schools do very well, particularly compared to their district school counterparts. The issue with this, however, is the mechanics by which competition improves the offerings in a market. 
it isn't the case that all future schools magically become better than baseline because they represent competition, right? Rather, and this is more true, the looser the charter school laws are and the easier it is to start a charter school, many players enter the market, right? Many schools get made. Some are better and some are worse. Some are great and some are terrible, right? Eventually, over time, quote-unquote customers in this market recognize that the terrible ones are terrible and they stop going. It's kind of Darwinian in that way. Eventually, the theory goes, the terrible ones close and the best ones are left. Now, the issue is this works well if the market is like smartphones, right? You buy a bad smartphone, you learn your lesson, you leave a bad review, maybe it ruins your month or however long it takes for you to get a new one, okay? You go to a bad school, that could ruin your life. Market competition works when you want to produce really amazing results on the top of the market and you don't really care how bad the worst ones are. Right, no one cares if people produce really, really bad smartphones. They're just not going to get bought, and eventually the company will get shut down. Market competition doesn't work when there should be a floor for how bad things are allowed to get. When the product at issue isn't an object or a service, but a human being. Which leads me to the question, is education a form of productive labor or reproductive labor? So, okay, we couldn't get this far into one of my posts without cracking out some Marxist theory. I promise this isn't going to hurt that bad. So one of the questions that came to my mind as I was studying the rhetoric around school choice and market competition is the question of what education is. To say that schools should compete is to use a metaphor that comes fundamentally from the world of productive labor. It assumes that schools are systems that produce things. And maybe those things that they produce are test results or graduates or college admits. Um, and to harken back to the phone metaphor, phones are something that Apple produces. But productive labor isn't the only form of labor that we can think about. There's also reproductive labor. So examples of that would be cleaning or cooking or child rearing. All of these things that are often known as quote unquote women's work. Reproductive labor isn't about producing things. It's not about making things from raw materials. It's about maintaining things and sustaining them. When you feed somebody, you're not trying to produce anything. You're just trying to give them the energy to continue living and surviving. So if we believe that education is really a form of production, if schools are meant to produce products out of raw materials, then it makes sense to talk about market competition and all of these things. But I don't think education at its best is actually like this. Do you? Instead, education seems to me to be much closer to child rearing, even if the students aren't always children. A different set of values starts to come to the foreground when you think about it this way. Consistency, presence, responsiveness, compassion, maybe even love. A kind of solid and unbroken attention starts to become important. And maybe this is why it's so devastating when a school closes on a family in the middle of a school year, because in a way, it's like being abandoned by a parent. And that's much worse than your iPhone suddenly breaking. You can always theoretically get another one. Every time a school closes, though, it could be that it leaves an emotional scar that changes how that child sees education forever. If education is closer to a reproductive labor, we may need better metrics that support that. 
that support the issues that actually matter to guardians and children. Maybe schools need to be rewarded and punished based on college graduations, not just admissions. Maybe they need to be held accountable for the mental health trajectories of their students, as well as their ability to be nurturing in a crisis or to stay connected in times thick and thin. Which leads me to my final set of questions, and these ones are totally unanswered. Who determines what bad and good mean in this ecosystem? Right, it's one thing for customers to leave reviews of their experience. That's not the case for the school system. Rather, the most important statistics are in fact standardized test scores, graduation rates, and admissions to college. If a school achieves these, but does it by, let's say, publicly shaming students for achieving low test scores, that school gets rated highly regardless of what the actual students and families think. So what metrics should we have? Even though I've listed some ideas earlier, this is a conversation that we need to have among those who are most affected by these systems, who have to live with them, no matter their form. Finally, these are not questions we can answer by looking at the quantitative studies, of which there are many. To understand these issues, we have to use qualitative research, which uses stories to surface realities that are often hidden from the stats. Take this story, for example, from Josh, who shared with me his experiences in a Chicago charter school where he was teaching an after-school program. My most intense charter school story is I was walking down the hall and there was a a student, um, a black student, I think the school was probably like well above 90%. Where was this? This was in Chicago, the south side of Chicago. Um, And the student was chewing gum and either the principal or the vice principal or someone clearly with a lot of authority at the school walked by and was like, are you chewing gum? Like, that's not allowed. Spit it out right now. And the student, this was very loud and disruptive. It wasn't like taking the student to the side. It was like yelling in the middle of the hallway. And the student like clearly got frustrated and just spit it out onto the ground. And then the the authority person was just like, you're suspended. Get out. Like, leave right now. I was with a group of students doing like extra class curricular activities like essentially answering questions about what it would be like to go to college in at university of michigan and um doing some small activities in engineering to try to see if students want to do that and they even like it was just like i don't think we we knew that the school was strict because students were like very orderly in a militaristic way like they had to do things very specifically and they clearly knew they weren't allowed to not do them in the specific way like like walk down the hall with both shoulders of your backpack on like when you move between classes and the teachers with you like walk in a straight line like if the teacher comes in the room like address the teacher and stop talking immediately like no no chit chat no room for error um like there was a clear disciplinary like if the teacher tell, tells you to do something they don't think you're doing it like go to the hall and then you go to the hall and you wait so there there's like there was just a clear very clear hierarchy and a knowledge of like there is a procedure here and you should follow the procedure and i think that so we kind of knew that but i don't think we knew to what extent that went that you would get literally like suspended for doing something so like small and why do you think they had this culture this disciplinary culture 
oh, it was the the stated reason, and I think they believed it, was like, if you can't behave and listen now, like, you're never going to make it in college because, like, college professors aren't going to put up with any bullshit. Like, you're going to have to do exactly what they say. Do you think that's true? No. No, college professors don't give a shit what you do. They just want you to care about what they're doing. Like, <laughs> like, 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 they're always like, if you misspell this word in a college essay, you'll fail it. If you, like, if you, you know, like, if you're not paying attention in college, they're just going to kick you out. And it's like, no one's going to do that. Um, they're, they're using it as a way to force attention when they can't capture it themselves they feel like if they don't keep the students' attention, they're not going to be able to get these outcomes that they want. The outcomes being, like, go to a four-year institution, graduate high school, um, because that's the outcomes they're measured on. And um, I think that they don't feel that they can keep the attention themselves. Like, they don't know how to keep the students' attention, so they mandate it to be kept. This is just one story, but I think of it as the start of many stories to come. In terms of my next steps, I feel like I've spent long enough in a rabbit hole of papers and articles, and in many ways this project is shaping up to be research on hard mode because there are such strong political motivations to cherry-pick evidence in support of your particular stance. So the next step that I'm going to take around this is to conduct primary research and actually talk to real people. Some questions I want to explore in interviews next week. What do other experts think about charter schools in Detroit in particular? Who has spoken with students and what do students think? And for that matter, why are attitudes towards the students at the heart of all this so frequently patronizing, if not downright dehumanizing? Um, I have in the blog version of this episode um, a clipping from the comments section of the Colorado Charter Schools video. Um, someone named Victor wrote, stupid Bruce Rahner wants to turn my school to a charter school, no. And then someone replied to that, Brady Westwater saying, unfortunately, your difficulty in correctly writing a single sentence, comma, demonstrates how you have been denied a proper education. So kind of a stinging ad hominem attack there. So often in conversations about this, the students themselves are figured as a problem. It's kind of no wonder they're rarely consulted. But my belief is this, if we talk to someone, they can't really stay a problem for long. In fact, if we talk to someone for long enough, with enough empathy, we may find that we're the problem. And we really have to be willing to face that. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. And I will connect to you again soon. Take care.